If you go to Matthew and then back up two books, Malachi, Zechariah, and Haggai, then you'll be in the right place. As we read at the beginning, when Jesus said at the beginning of of His ministry, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and yet we're waiting for, for something more. We're saying that there's this firm foundation, and yet they read that the creation in the midst of that firm foundation is groaning. And we may ask, well, if it's firm, have you ever been in an old house, a really old house, and gone upstairs? And you walk, and things kind of creak, and you wonder if maybe you're going to end up downstairs without taking the stairs? But if there really is a firm foundation, then why does it groan? Why, why are we struggling if the foundation is so firm? And we, we say that, and we believe both of those things. We believe that our foundation is secure, that we are firm. We also believe that things aren't right. We believe that not only ourselves, but those around us, the whole creation groans and waits and longs for that day when things will be made right. And someone looking from the outside may go, are they schizophrenic? Do they, do they not see how those things really don't match up? How can you say you're secure when you look around and there's no security? We talk about hope. And I want this morning for us to think about where we place our hope. The Sunday school answer is we place our hope in God. The reality is we really do place our hope in lots of other things. And I want to show you from the book of Haggai that that's not necessarily wrong as long as we get the ultimate object correct. Some, some background before we dive in. The prophets talk a whole lot about the day of the Lord. That day when God in judgment and restoration makes all things right. Sometimes the prophets refer to it as that day. Or the day of the Lord or the final day or the last days. Haggai begins after the nation of Israel has returned from captivity. We talked about the story before in here. God promised them a long, long, long time ago under Moses that if you behave yourselves, I will let you stay in the land. The land is yours forever. If you behave yourselves, you can stay. If you don't behave yourselves, there's going to be trouble, and eventually I have the right to remove you from the land. And he did that under the Babylonians in 586 B.C., a a good thousand years after he made that promise to Moses. And so they were gone. And then, lo and behold, all of a sudden, 70 years later, he says, you can go back. Now think about this for a moment. They've been gone 70 years. There were some people who were born in Babylon, who got married in Babylon, had kids in Babylon, and now all of a sudden, you can go back home. And they say home, this is home. This is all that I've ever known. 
And there were a few older people who remembered, who remembered what it was like, who remembered home. Long story short, a few thousand people made the trek back from Babylon to Judea, to Jerusalem. Probably less than the population of this county decided we're going to go back and we're going to start over. Well, if, if you go back and you start over, what's your priority? Where do you start? Well, for the nation, before they were taken into captivity, Jerusalem, and specifically the temple, was the center of their existence. God required them to take vacations three times a year. Where would you vacation? You'd vacation in Jerusalem. That was where you became closer to God, literally because He dwelt in the temple. That was where you paid your taxes, so to speak, as it was a theocracy in one sense. That was where you would worship. It was where you would have festivals. It was where you, it was the party place, so to speak. All of life revolved around that and it was destroyed. And so maybe our priority should be to rebuild this building, rebuild this temple. And they began to do that. But as you're aware of in life, life happens. And you begin to think, well, yeah, I know God needs His temple rebuilt, but I need shelter and I need to sow crops and I need to take care of my livestock. And that temple sat unfinished for 16 years. And the Israelites continued to have trouble. It was like they would take two steps forward and then they would take three steps back. They, you know, it's like you finally save up enough money and the dishwasher breaks or the transmission goes out. There's always something, and it seems like there's always a little less than there was the year before. That's, that's how it was for them. They weren't progressing. They weren't making any progress. Things weren't getting any better. And the prophet Haggai shows up and says, you know, the problem is, you know, you've, you've decked your houses out. You've built nice places for yourself. You're taking care of your own business, but God's house still lies in ruin." If you'll take care of that, I will take care of you. And he makes a promise to them. You, you take care of the temple, you build it, and I will take care of you. And so they say, amazingly, okay, we, we believe you. And they began to work on it. They began to build it. As a nation, the leadership, they all got behind it and said, let's do this thing. Let's, let's build this temple because that temple became the object of their hope. If we do this, things will be better for us. And so they hoped in the completion of the temple. And then Haggai shows up and he, and he says this beginning in, in chapter 2 in verse 1. On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? So he gathers them all up and says, Hey, where are the old guys in the room? Do you remember what this used to look like? Nod, yeah, yeah, we remember that. We remember it. Probably told some stories. And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison, 
And if I were all those people, at this point in time, I'd, I'd sort of get a little hot under the collar. Wait, you tell us to build this temple, and we obey, and we're obedient, and now you come in and, and sort of pour salt on the wound. Compared to what it used to look like, this is nothing. What do you think they felt? What was going through their mind? But, you know, Solomon had everything when he built the temple. Of course it was better then. We, we have nothing. You know, we're still pawns under the Persian rule. We have to fill out a building permit for anything we want to get. Solomon could just say it and it was done. He had unlimited wealth. Of course this doesn't compare. That's not fair. If I was there, that's what I'd be thinking. But I think there's a reason that he does that because then he continues. Verse 4, But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land, take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you. In other words, okay, let's deal with the fact that this isn't what you thought it was going to be. While your hope may be in this, it's a limited hope. If you're, if you're thinking this temple is going to be the answer to all your prayers. As for the promise which I made when you made you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. See, the issue is whether I'm here or not, not what it looks like. For thus says the Lord of hosts, Once more in a little while I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake the nations and they will come with the wealth of all the nations and I will fill this house with glory. You see, you're going to be in this in-between time, people. You're going to build this temple and it's going to be a shack compared to what it used to be. But that's not the issue. That's really not where you need to put your hope. Your hope is in the fact that I'm going to be here. My presence, my spirit is going to dwell with you regardless of what this looks like. So in one sense, yes, their hope is supposed to be in the obedience to complete the temple because that's where God dwells. But if that's all that their hope is in, if it's not in the fact that their hope is really in God whose spirit is with them, who's present with them, then their hope is misplaced. And so he reminds them that it's not the building, it's the fact that it's a building that will house my spirit and that I will be with you. But there's still a problem. Because 500 years after Moses, God made another promise to the nation of Israel, to David. David, one of your descendants is going to sit on the throne forever. And for 500 years, son after son after son after son after son after son after son, after son sat on the throne until their disobedience got to be such that in Jeremiah 22, God says, I'm going to remove the signet rings standing for the, the royalty that was in the house of David, I'm going to remove that from my fingers. 
And he did. That last king, the king of Babylon, took and drug him back to Babylon and then appointed someone else in his place who was a relative but not a direct descendant. And it appeared, it looked like, it seemed like that promise was broken. It looked like, it felt like, it seemed like that maybe things weren't going to work out the way they wanted them to work out. And then we, we meet this guy named Zerubbabel, who's a governor. In other words, that means he does what the king of Persia tells him to do. But lo and behold, he's the grandson of the last king of Israel. He's in that line, and I'm wondering how many people put their hope in him. Maybe, just maybe, if we can get our act together, we can drum up a rebellion, and we can be our own people again. But is he even the right guy? You know what Zerubbabel means? It means a descendant of Babylon. His own father didn't have enough faith or courage or hope to name him something positive. They'd been in Babylon, and he named his son, you're a descendant of Babylon, nothing more. I don't know if, if Shealtiel doubted. I don't know if he was frustrated. I don't know if he just thought, well, that was a nice promise, but it's not going to work. We'll just start over here. My son, you are a descendant of Babylon. And we find that all of a sudden he's back. Do we, do we put our hope in him? Is he the one? And Haggai shows up again in, in chapter 2 and verse 20. Then the word of the Lord came to a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth. Same word he used, same phrase he used a little while ago, talking about how he was going to, one day the temple would, would be the way it's supposed to be. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms and destroy the power of kingdoms of nations. And I will overthrow the chariots and the riders and the horses and the riders will go down, every one by the sword of another. On that day, and there's that phrase that, that for us points us to that day when God's going to make all things right. The day when He's going to shake, when He says, I will, I will. If they're thinking about rebellion, God says, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, my servant, declares the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring. That same phrase used in Jeremiah when God says, I'm going to take it off, I'm done with you, the sign of royalty. I'm going to make you like royalty. In other words, I'm going to give the nation hope again. I'm going to restore the line. The promise is not ended. And yet those people, like us, waited. And Zerubbabel never became king of anything, nor did his son, nor did his grandson, nor did his great-grandson, nor did his great-great-great-grandson. And for 500 years they waited and waited and waited. 
there were some rebellions during that time. They got tired of waiting and said, let's take matters into our own hands. Let's take up swords. Let's fight. None of those were ever successful to the point that they'd hoped. And then, lo and behold, this man Jesus shows up. And he says, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And through his life and through his death, and then through his resurrection, we see that, that in one sense that hope, that longing that the people in Haggai's day were looking for has come to fruition. And we get a promise that no longer is there a temple that we go to to find God, but he dwells with his people, the church. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And that because of the resurrection of Christ, there is one who now sits on the throne forever and ever. There is one descendant of David. And so in one sense, our hope is satisfied. And yet, as we said, we, like them, are still sitting in this in-between time of, but there's going to be a final redemption, a final settling of accounts. And so I think, so, so what do I do today? Okay, that's all, that's all nice and wonderful. I say, okay, I hope that one day God's going to make everything right. But what about today? What about now? How do I live? And as I thought about this this week, some conversations I had, some things came to mind. So I want to share with you some examples. And as you go home today, I want you to think of others where we temporarily place our hope and why ultimately if God is not undergirding that, we're wasting our time. One of the things that, that we do at, at this church is we support the Pregnancy and Parenting Center with our money and with volunteers because we really believe that they are doing something in this community that is worth doing. And there's biblical warrant for us to support and pray for and encourage people who are willing to stand in the gap and help those that society is not going to help and rescue those that society is not going to rescue. And God cares about those things. And so in one sense, we put our hope that they will do, as an organization, good in this county. In the same way that the, those people put their hope in a completed temple would be good for them. But if, if that's where we place all of our hope, if, if, if we say, if they don't do it, nobody will, then we're fooling ourselves. Because everybody that volunteers there and works there and helps that organization, they're fallible people. They will not be successful 100% of the time. And so if, if we are not praying that God would intervene in the lives of people, then we're wasting money by putting hope in an organization. Paul helps us see that. In 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 1, he says he, he hopes... In the Corinthians, his hope is in them that they will actually get their act together based on the letters he's written them and kind of turn their church around, their lives around. 
says that. My hope is in you. He hopes in temporal, fallible people. But if you read the whole gist of that passage, Paul's hope is really in God. And through the power of the Spirit, he's working in their lives as they seek to be obedient and, and try and get up and fall and get up and fall. Paul's hope really isn't in the Corinthians. His hope is in the power of God working in their lives. Another example, reading about elections this week. I hope when I go to the polls and, and mark a candidate, I hope that the candidate that I think is the right candidate wins. And we have biblical warrant for hoping that someone that we think will bring righteousness and justice to government. There's biblical warrant for wanting people like that in positions of authority. God cares about those things. But if my hope is in a political party or a particular candidate, then what will often happen because of the way our country works and because of the sovereignty of God who says, I raise up and I depose leaders, if my hope is in, we just punch buttons now, don't we? We don't even bubble things in or check boxes. We just punch buttons. If my hope is in the name by the button that I punch, what I might find is that in God's sovereignty and God's plan that I've really punched the wrong button. That I'm hoping in someone that God did not want in authority. That I'm hoping in someone that God did not choose for whatever reason. At this time, he says, that's not who I want. And so if I'm hoping in a candidate, I'm hoping in a person, I'm hoping in a party, and my ultimate hope is not in what God is doing in this particular nation or this particular state or this particular county, if my hope is not in Him and if my prayers are not toward that end, God, would you make the people that you put in positions of authority people of righteousness and people of justice? Then my hope is misplaced. David helps us to see that. There was a king named Saul who was neither righteous nor just. His motivating factor was fear and self-protection. And God was displeased with him. And yet David refused to speak a word against him or raise his sword against him because that's who God had chosen at that point in time, whether David could understand that or not. And, and believe me, David was a lot worse off than you and I. He spent a lot of those years running for his life. We just may be inconvenienced if someone is in power that we don't like. We may be miffed or unhappy. I don't know what this country looks like in 20 years or the church looks like in 20 years, but my guess is, at least in the short term, none of you are going to run for your life from the king. And so our hope is, in one sense, in a government that would function righteously and justly. But if our hope is not in God, then we're wasting our time. And if our trust is not in God, who raises up leaders and deposes leaders. Two examples. My encouragement to you this week is to go home and think, okay, where do I put my hope? 
and don't give yourself the Sunday school answer, a legitimate question. What am I hoping for? What am I hoping in? What is, what is the object of my longing and my waiting and my expectation? Ask yourself those questions. Oftentimes, the answer to those questions, there's nothing wrong in and of itself of hoping for something, but then ask yourself the tougher question, how am I trusting in God to be the foundation, to be the one that I'm really hoping in, in this situation, in this system, in, this, in these people? Ultimately, am I really hoping in that or am I really hoping in God? That's the question. Again, we see through Scripture in lots of places that people place their hope in temporal, fallible people and systems and structures. And what we find they were successful is ultimately was their hope in God. Over and over, Paul and Peter hoped that people would do the right thing, but what we see is they pray for people and as they write that their ultimate hope was in God. And then we have this that we do on a fairly regular basis. And we say that this is beneficial for us. I come with an expectation that by drinking the fruit of the vine and eating the bread that I will be nourished. I really do come with an expectation that this will help me to walk with God better this week as I think on and dwell on the truth of the gospel. That Christ died for my sins according to the scriptures. And the third day he rose again according to the scriptures. And then if I put my faith and trust in him, that my sins not only forgiven, but that I have the power over sin. And I believe and I expect and I hope that this reminder will carry over into Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday, reminding me that, that yes, I have a Savior who loves me and died for me. But if I come just expecting this to perform some magic trick in my soul, like filling up my tank at the store that'll get the car down the road for another week. If that's really all that I'm hoping. I just, I'm good for another week. Then it's misplaced. Because my hope is really not in, in this or this. It's in who it stands for. I have a Savior who loved me enough to not only leave the glories of heaven and become that king, to take on humanity, to take on flesh, to deal with us and our selfishness and our greed and our hate. But he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's where my hope is. And in the same way, when God promised to Moses and to David and to his people that he would be present with them, that he makes that same promise to us, my hope is that in one day he will 
set all things right, make all things new. That wrong will be called wrong and right will be called right. And that scales will be balanced. That's where my hope is. And I, I use this, if I may use those words, I use this to remind me that this points to something bigger, something better, something more wonderful, someone more wonderful. And so my prayer is that you would come to this place in hope and expectation. And the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Christ Community Church, if, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, we would love for you to participate in this celebration of what he has done for us. Parents, if you have young children, you know their hearts, and we just ask that you would um, monitor them as we participate together as a family. Let's pray together, then we will partake together. Father, we delight in your presence, and we are thankful for your love and your mercy and your grace. We rejoice that you have given us life and given it to us abundantly. And so we, we come together as a family to celebrate what you set out for us on the night that you were betrayed where you took bread and you broke it and you gave it to your disciples and you said, take, eat. This is my body which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me.